the reason I like your whole philosophy of best self-management is I think, and this is a little bit of a philosophical statement, I think every human being wants to succeed in their life in their own particular way. And when they go to work, they leave some of that aside unless they find a really good fit. And so if we can create a company and a set of jobs and management practices that allow people to fulfill their destiny in alignment with the business because they learn a lot by being at work, the company does great. And then you end up with a company where the people take care of the company instead of the company taking care of the people. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Welcome to the Best Self Management Podcast. I'm Shane Metcalf. And I'm David Hassel. We're really excited to have Josh Burson join us today. Josh Burson founded Burson & Associates in 2001 to provide research and advisory services focused on corporate learning. He expanded the company's coverage to encompass HR, talent management, talent acquisition, and leadership, and became a recognized expert in the talent market. Burson sold the company to Deloitte in 2012. In 2019, Burson founded the Josh Burson Academy, a professional development academy which has become the home for HR in past months. He is frequently featured in publications such as Forbes, Harvard Business Review, HR Executive, The Wall Street Journal, and CLO Magazine. He's a popular blogger and has more than 800,000 followers on LinkedIn. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you, Shane. It's exciting to be here and talk about this topic. It's an honor to have you. Having run a HR tech company for the last eight years, you've certainly been a very prominent figure in our journey. And it's really great to have a, a deeper conversation with you. Well, you guys are doing an amazing job. So I'm excited to be part of this and, and talk about all these topics together. So Josh, one of the things that we would actually like to dig in a little bit, because I think that a lot of our listeners probably are pretty familiar with your work and hear your a lot of your analysis. And we're kind of wondering, how did you become Josh person? You know, how did, <laughs> where did your journey- You really want to hear that? Okay. Into the world of HR start? I'll, I'll, I'll make it quick. I got out of college in 1978 as an engineer, worked as an engineer for two years, went back to school, decided I didn't like engineering went into tech and sales at IBM for 10 years. I was a moderately successful IBM guy. Then I left IBM, went to work for a software company, Sybase, spent eight years there in product management and marketing, jumped out of there during their bad times and went to work for an online learning company in the very beginning days of online learning as the head of marketing. Little did I know this was going to be a new career. And that company didn't succeed. We had to sell it to another company. So I worked at the second company for a little while and left in 2001 during the recession, was laid off and had no job. And I realized after 20 years of you know, sort of messing around in tech and spending some time in the training industry, there was sort of a latent demand for research on how to do online training. 
So I stayed home and basically did research on online training and tried to sell research reports on online training. And it turned out there was a gigantic demand for that. And that turned me into an industry analyst. So that's how I got here. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> it's kind of a kind of not a typical story, but I think most people's careers go through those kinds of wandering journeys. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, one thing I've, I've noticed from your writing is I experience you as having a very humanistic bent to your writing. Um, you know, and what I mean by that is like, you know, care for people and understanding of, of that. And I feel like sometimes in HR, I realize some people get so caught up in the the structures of it and the administration and all of that, that you can kind of lose sight of that. Do you feel like the industry is moving more into, you know, away from kind of compliance and Mm -hmm. practices like that and into more of the, you know, how do we unlock the potential of our teams? How do we really create psychological safety and all of that? Do you you feel like that's the progression the industry is moving or is it more of just a subset in your mind? Oh, absolutely. No, the history of HR, HR started as an administrative compliance payroll function. You know, it was called personnel. And the reason it was set up that way is because the companies were set up that way. And the human beings were basically workers and you had managers and workers and the workers did their jobs and the HR people paid them. And then as the world became more focused on empowering people and giving people more interesting jobs and roles and the economy adapted to that, the HR function has now turned into a strategic function, especially during the pandemic, where it's really central to coming back to work, to pull together the human issues, the emotional issues, the psychological issues, and the business issues of why are we performing well here? Who's the right person for that job? How do we better develop leaders? Do we have the right leadership culture? Why are we not being diverse? Why are we being too hard on people? Or should we be harder on people? It's a very, very complex profession. And the reason I love it is it brings together a lot of human things about psychology and caring and empathy with a lot of very hard things about accountability and results and business and innovation. And I think for me, you know, I am a science sort of scientist by nature, but because I'm a little bit older, I've had two kids. I have a wonderful wife. I'm very sensitive to the human issues too. <laughs> yeah, so, right. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not the most caring human in the world. You can ask my wife to give you her opinion, but I, I think I can bring that perspective. And the other thing that's to me very important in HR is this topic of corporate citizenship and society. The companies exist in a world of societal issues and every employee and every customer obviously has a perspective on the role they want to play in society. So when they come and work for your company, they are bringing that with them. And you know, you would like them to leave it at the door and just come in and do their jobs and go home, but they can't. So now we have this really interesting issue of what is company's role in society, whether it be income inequality, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, and that is now falling in the laps of HR. So HR people have to be pretty good systemic thinkers to do their jobs well. Yeah, I, I do not think we're going to put this genie back in the bottle where we need to actually care about the psychology and the entire human and the enormous complexity that we're all facing right now. Yeah, just just one point. You know, I love how you've kind of framed that in both the, you know, the empathy side of it and the accountability side of it. And those two worlds sometimes feeling like they're at odds with each other. You know, we'll often talk about inside of best self-management that a lot of companies seem to skew to one side or the other. 
we hear them use language like, oh, you know, we're a sports team, which typically means like we care about results over the people or relationships, or we're a family where we care about, we have more empathy than we care about results. We're trying to find the middle ground where we can say, no, no, you can care about both of those in equal parts. And that's actually the future, but it's tricky. It's definitely tricky. The reason I like your whole philosophy of best self-management is I think, and this is a little bit of a philosophical statement, I think every human being wants to succeed in their life in their own particular way. And when they go to work, they leave some of that aside unless they find a really good fit. And so if we can create a company and a set of jobs and management practices that allow people to fulfill their destiny in alignment with the business, because they learn a lot by being at work, the company does great. And then you end up with a company where the people take care of the company instead of the company taking care of the people. And that is not impossible to do. A lot of companies do that. But leaders have to sort of understand that and think that way. I've learned a lot about management from people who worked in the military, actually, where they empower people with tremendous responsibilities very early in their careers and um, give them vast amounts of training and lots of accountability and rules But people grow up very, very fast in the military. And I don't think companies often do that. Sometimes companies don't give people the opportunity to expand themselves as quickly as they could. And every industry and every company is a little bit different those ways. So so that's why I kind of like what you guys are talking about. That's great. Thank you. So Josh, there's a couple of threads I want to pick up on. One, you know, your dual role as an economist, you know, kind of maybe uh, (laughs) some bleed over from the parallel universe where you are a full-time economist. So you recently wrote a paper of making some economic predictions. I'd love to hear a little bit of that because I think we are are in such uncertain times that everybody's wondering where is the economy going to go? How do we create a more just economy, create more equality, create more economic opportunity for dis enfranchised communities? And then how do we as company leaders participate in that process? Shane, thank you for asking that question. I don't get a chance to talk about this very much, but I I think one of the problems with the quote unquote, the economy is the way we measure it. We measure it by GDP. We measure it by stock indexes. We measure it by the unemployment rate, but we're not really measuring the economy that everybody feels every day. Income inequality people not keeping up with the cost of living, uh, healthcare issues, those are really the part of the economy too. And they're not included in any of those measures. Yeah, I mean, what, so, I think 50% of Americans don't have more than it would yeah, be, I mean, it's just would be hard put to come up with $1,000. Right, exactly. So, and, and I don't know who to even say this to, honestly, because there is no person who runs all this data, but we need to measure the economy by the financial health and well-being of every individual in the society. That doesn't mean we have an average because the average is meaningless because there's a small number of people who make a ton of money and have great lives and a large number of people have terrible lives. So we need better measures of that. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not the way CNBC and the rest of the world measures it. So we feel it as employers. And the reason I talk about it is not because I'm a bleeding heart liberal, I'm probably more conservative than than liberal, but I know companies struggle with the impact of that. 
when the company finds we have high turnover or we can't recruit people or our employees are complaining about this and that, it's because the employees are basically coming into the company with those economic issues and then the company is trying to fix them. And companies do amazing things. Businesses you know, come up with new benefits programs and rewards programs and career programs and development programs. No matter how big your company is, even if you're Walmart, you can't change the whole economy. So I've, I kind of feel like on the political side, we need better measures of the true health of the United States. And that will make us allocate resources in a slightly better way. And I think we're realizing that in the pandemic, because what the pandemic seems to have done is it sheared off all of the layers of protection we had on not talking about social issues. Because we're all dealing with, are we going to get sick? Are we going to die? You know, how are we going to get our food? Is somebody going to break into my house? So all of a sudden, these things have become raw and we can talk about them. So I think right now, we may see some progress on this better measures of, of what economic health really means. I think you're spot on. I mean, it's, it's, it's so on display to now, you know, seeing the record high unemployment on one end, lots of businesses struggling and starting to declare bankruptcy in the kind of the very small businesses and then the stock market roaring back to the, you know, higher than the peak before this all happened. So it's, it's really... It's, it's really weird. You know, in fact, I wrote an article this week that uh, I had to tone it down, that the Bureau of the Labor Statistics miscalculated the unemployment rate and was quite a bit off by 3%. The unemployment rate is more like 16 or 17%, but they said it's 13.5%. There's all sorts of stuff written about this. And then I turn on CNBC and Jim Cramer goes, the economy's back. And the stock market, you know, you remember that day? It was yesterday, yes. the day before. Yeah. I'm like, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we live in a very uh, psychotic world where there's just a disconnection from the things that we're seeing on TV and what the stock market is saying and the actual lived experience. So I, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, because as company leaders, we know we are a drop in the bucket. And as you said, even if we were Walmart, we would still have very little influence on the societal level. What can we do? You know, what are you seeing the best companies do in order to create at least some security, some sense of sanity within their own companies? Well, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. I think it's very similar to what we can do as individuals. You know, you can go home at night and watch TV and get mad, but you can make your life better. You can turn the TV off. And you can take care of your kids and your family and your friends. And I think that's what we have to do in companies is each company has the opportunity because most companies have a reasonable amount of resources and a reasonable amount of flexibility on where to put them. Each company has to decide. I I like the word citizenship. What what is our level of citizenship? Who are we going to take care of? Obviously, we're going to take care of our customers. We're going to take care of our employees. Are we going to take care of our employees' families? Are we going to take care of our employees' communities? Are we going to take care of the environment? Are we going to do things in the political environment? There's a range and there's sort of a, it goes sort of up. And some companies are very, very focused on being good citizens. You know, the stories of Patagonia, as everybody knows, and Unilever. And these are companies that were founded many years ago as mission-driven organizations. In some ways, I mean, this, the funny way they, you know, talk about Patagonia, Patagonia is a mission in disguise as a company. And Unilever has the same history. And so, you know, every company has the opportunity to to move around that scale. The CEO, the CFO, the senior leaders can think about that. 
And then during bad times, when the company's losing money, it's hard. You know, then you've got to decide, well, you know, can we continue to be this way? And the answer is you can. You just have to do it in a more modest way. So, so that's the role I think we play. And that's the reason I like what I do is I hopefully can influence companies and give them a little bit of freedom and a little bit of authority to do that because it always pays off. It always pays off to think more about your role in society. It seems to always make the company more successful. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's a fun story is that 15.5 probably wouldn't exist in its current form without Patagonia uh, because the founder had uh, practiced something that we built our, our software off of years and years ago in the 80s. But I'm actually really encouraged. You know, I've been, I've been part of the conscious capitalism community for a number of years, founded by John Mackey at Whole Foods and, mm-hmm. and uh, Raj Sisodia. And their whole concept is that, you know, to be good citizens, we have to be thinking about stakeholder orientation, not just shareholder orientation. So creating value for all stakeholders. And I think I was a little bit cynical about whether that would catch on in mainstream, because even even the terminology, conscious capitalism, it it seems a little fringe. And I got to say, I was really, really encouraged hearing a number of leaders come out of Davos this past year, including Mark Benioff at Salesforce and some other folks and starting to say that the new capitalism is stakeholder capitalism. So they're not, they're not using the, the terminology uh, conscious capitalism, but they're moving in that direction. And even Jim Cramer, I saw on CNBC talking about how this is what's needed from business and that you know it, his perception's changing as well. So I really hope that that's the, the way that yeah. companies in the future do embrace well, citizenship. David, I agree with you with one caveat. I think when the manifesto came out last year from the corporate roundtable and everybody, you know, jumped on it. It was a lot of PR. Yeah. It was a lot of talk. Now there's action. So now that we have an economic crisis and a lot of people are losing their jobs, Target gives all their hourly employees a $2 an hour raise. That is doing something. Yeah. So now I think companies have to do something. One of the things that was bugging me during the economic cycle was all these companies buying back stock, sitting on cash, not increasing wages, but putting money into their shareholders. So now they have to put money into the employees because the employees are all in trouble. So I think we're seeing the manifestation of it now. It's easy to jump on these lists and say, we're going to do the right thing. You know, most of these companies that are big, they could give $100 million away to a foundation and they wouldn't even feel it. You know, they wouldn't even notice it. But really raising the wages of employees and putting money into programs and not laying people off, that's really starting to happen. So I agree with you. Well, and it's so fascinating because we had a massive economic crisis followed by an explosion of the social crisis that we've been in in this country for a long time. And so I think a lot of companies were, okay, well, we need to cut costs and yeah, we need to take care of our people, but we need to cut extra things like our DEI programs. And then boom, the explosion of Black Lives <laughs> Matter into the mainstream right. and the, the enormous pressure for companies to not just pay lip service to how can we support minority communities? How can we actually educate ourselves? But we need to do something about it because people are watching and our employees are watching and there is a, a, a moral demand for us to actually grow up a little bit. And so I think it's really fascinating the dual nature of this uh, completely intense 2020 
that hopefully actually pushes our evolution a little forward where we start paying attention to these things. I mean, I know for ourselves, we're a predominantly white company. You know, our, our leadership team is mostly white and we've been, you know, building a company is not an easy thing. And we've been yeah. in the process of the struggle to be a successful company because it, it's not yeah. an easy thing to build a company. And the DEI conversation has been something that's definitely been happening for a couple of years. But boy, I tell you, we are taking it a lot more seriously now. We are really looking at, oh yeah, how do we need to change? How do we need to evolve? What mindsets do David and I need to update ourselves with so that we can accurately respond to what is being asked of us right now. I'll tell you, my perception was, okay, you know, this is something that the the people ops team should spearhead and we should have a committee and something we should take seriously and we're going to delegate that over there. And mm-hmm. I think the thing I've woken up to is, you know, and, I, and Josh, you and I, before the show, I mentioned that we, our leadership team's been reading this book, White Fragility, and just working to educate ourselves. And I think the, you know, the big aha for me was, you know, that it's uh, just being like, well, I'm a good guy. I'm not a racist. So therefore I'm doing my part actually isn't enough because that takes you out of the curiosity. It takes you out of the conversation, takes you out of the responsibility for the fact that we are one society and this is our job. It's Shane's job. It's my job actually to lead the DEI efforts, to hold the pole. Uh, And so that's a big shift that we've had just in the past two weeks. No, that's that's fantastic. I mean, it's a very, very tricky topic. I live in Oakland, so I live in a very diverse community, as you guys know. Yeah. And I went to a mostly black high school. Um, and I think in the United States, the underlying issue is that the black community has been mistreated for hundreds of years. There's enormous trauma uh, that they've been through. And it's very hard for a white person to really know what it's like to be black and walk down the street and feel fear from the police or whatever it is that happens. And the thing about DNI that, that always struck me, because we've been doing a lot of work. I've done research on DNI. I've met many, many DNI people who are trying to do a DNI program in the academy. We haven't quite figured out how to frame it yet. Is I think DNI is a critically important program. But I hope it isn't getting in the way of the real issue of pay transparency, pay fairness, and talking about these issues in a way that people can share their fears and concerns, which is what I think what you're finding out. And I want to read this book. I haven't read it yet, but I will. And I think people are going to find that the issues are much more issues of trauma, sadness, fear, and not anger. This is this part of, and also, by the way, black community is not the same as every other minority. Black people in the United States have been through a particularly terrible situation and their family situations are usually different because of that. So we can't just throw it into the brush of DNI and it's the same thing as gender. No, it's not. (laughs) It's different. And so I think we're beginning to really, really have that conversation at a national level, which means we have to have it in companies too. But I don't think companies can fix it. I mean, I think companies can be part of the solution, but we can't we can't say to the the CEO of Apple or Google, why aren't you hiring more black engineers? It's it's way way more systemic than that, and I, and I hope everybody now realizes that. So, Josh, given you're a bit of a futurist and you like to kind of think about where where do the current trends take us, I'm curious if you have any thoughts of where you see 
the DNI conversation, you know, how does this evolve? Where are we in relationship to how companies are actually supporting their black employees, how companies are supporting minority communities in five, 10 years from now? I have an interesting perspective on it that might be a little controversial. First of all, we have to have the talk and we have to be fair and we have to be transparent and we have to be diverse and we have to enforce it. I I think in some ways inside of a corporation, DNI is like a safety program. If you violate it, it's a safety violation, which means you have to think about it as not we're going to do some training and cross our fingers that everybody behaves differently, but we're going to have metrics, we're going to have measures, we're going to have checks and procedures. When people get promoted, we're going to look at who's doing the promotion and how the promotion was done. And is there a committee of people looking at that promotion? And are we being fair and diverse? When I went to work for IBM in 1981 or whatever year it was, we had affirmative action. My first manager was a black guy and he was a great manager. I don't know if he would have been in that job today. He may not. The affirmative action programs did move the needle in a big way in the 70s and the 80s. And so I think we need to go back to more structural things inside of companies that prevent bad behavior from happening because the bias is always going to be there. I mean, it's just some of the stuff people are born with this and it has to be not okay and set some rules. So I think we need to be a little bit more proactive inside of companies. Um, And I think a lot of the tech companies are trying to do that. They're trying to set very strict goals and maybe an African-American or a woman or somebody who's a minority will get promoted faster than a white male. And, you know, the white males are going to sit around and get all upset about it. But maybe that's just what has to happen in society because we have so much stuff already going for us. Okay, it's not it's not that big of a deal if we don't get promoted right now because we have a million other things that we're bringing to the table that, that society gave us. So I don't know how to put that into words, but that's kind of where I think we need to go. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a tricky thing. I mean, I was having this conversation about in an ideal world in the future that I want to see is that we have diverse companies and diverse leadership teams and diverse boards because that's just how things work because we have a diverse society and there's equal opportunity. And there are companies like that too. You know, you go to Nestle. I mean, I've visited so many big companies around the world. Companies that do business in many, many countries and have businesses that are uniquely like CPG companies, for example, where they have to build a product that appeals to people in this country of this nationality. They tend to be diverse by nature because they can't operate without being diverse. But companies that don't do business that way, they have to sort of force themselves. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's definitely a learning process for every organization. Can you tell us a little bit about the Academy? We think it's an amazing idea. And you know, you're, you're saying that you're looking at creating some DI content in the Academy. Just give us a little bit of an overview of the Academy and what the actual vision for this is. Like, sure. And what's the impossible goal with the Academy? <laughs> well, you guys, I, th- I got to thank you for asking me these kinds of questions because I don't get a chance to talk about this very often. My belief on HR, having done it now for 20 years as an analyst, is that it's a devilishly complicated domain because it does cover so many of the topics we talked about earlier. And it is more of a craft than a profession. It's not like accounting where you learn the general accounting, GAAP, and then you just go become an accountant. You can't do that. You have to constantly be 
creating and iterating and learning from other people in order to do HR well. So what I wanted to do with the academy is create a place where HR people at all levels and all types of companies could come to learn what is the latest and greatest and bestest way to do all these different things. And it may not be written in a book yet. Somebody will write a book about it, but then there'll be another book after that. And so the academy is a place to learn. It's both formal and informal and unstructured. It's, it is a place. People go in there. We have 10,000 people in there now. And so it's really growing and you can talk to each other. But the learning methodology is stories, case studies, lots and lots of videos from real practitioners and lots of interactive conversations directed in a learning strategy to get you to talk about the problems you have in your company and based on the frameworks that we teach you, what would be different ways of solving it? And then other people will communicate with you and you get a lot of feedback. So the way the learning design works is all of the formal programs are done in cohorts and you go through a group with about 50, roughly 50 people. And by the end of the program, you get to know all 50 people and you have all talked about the problems that you're trying to solve with those other 50 people. So not only do you learn from us and all the companies that we've studied, but you get to learn from this other group. So that's the idea of it is to make it a very dynamic, continuously evolving learning experience. And it's turning out it's kind of working. I mean, I, I didn't know if it would work, but it's really working. And Nomadic Learning, the company I work with is a magnificent company. And so we have, have lots of experience from them. And, you know, now we have the pandemic and we have public health. And I mean, how many people in HR studied public health? Not that many. Right. (laughs) How many people studied infection and disease prevention? Not that many. So this is a perfect example of something we have to learn about very, very fast. You know, working remotely has been a big topic recently, obviously. Resilience is a big topic. Positive psychology is a big topic. So we have a platform now where we can very quickly get this information together and create a learning experience for people. And the other thing about the Academy that we realized over the last year is that it is a safe home. We call it the home, the world's home for HR. Hmm. It's a safe place to be yourself and talk about the problems in your company in a supportive way. It is a community in a sense, although we don't really call it that, but it is very much of a community. And, and, and I think that spirit is alive and well in there. What are some of the topics that you haven't covered yet that you really want to cover? Well, we're working on a big program on organization design, which is a very complicated, rapidly changing topic. That'll be out later this year. We're working on a big program on organization and individual resilience. That's all about the topics of designing the organization and the business practices and the HR practices and the individual practices for agility and resilience because we're in a world of, you know, kind of more, there'll be more black swan events after this. 2020s, I think, are going to be full of black swans. Oh you, know, yep. I, you know, we're, I mean, we're six months into the first year of the decade. You know, the whole thing in Minneapolis is sort of another black swan event. And then, you know, there'll be more. We want to do a program on diversity and inclusion, but I don't know how yet. So, so that's on the list. Uh, we have a pretty interesting program on recruiting and talent acquisition. We kind of pushed that off because that's less of a problem at the moment, but we'll, we'll get that out by the end of the year. Uh, we got a whole bunch of things on our list. That's great. If you had a magic wand and you could update uh, the entire world of HR with, <laughs> with one shift, you, know, you get one wish for every 
HR, people ops department in the world? I think the biggest opportunity HR professionals have is to create their own T-shaped career. In other words, go deep and go broad. Learn everything you can about the topic that you're the most interested in, and then learn everything you can about the adjacent topics to that. Because HR professionals cannot be specialists the way they used to be. We have to be very aware of all of the HR practices touch each other now. Pay is impacted by diversity. Diversity is impacted by recruiting. Recruiting has to do with tech and and, the, and data. And so, so think about yourself as a full stack professional. Like there's this idea of a full stack engineer where you know the hardware and the database and the middleware and the UI and all that. I think in the best of all worlds, that's your career in HR. Hmm. to become a full-stack HR person. And if you do that, and if you love it, you'll have a great career, and you'll have incredible job opportunities, and you'll add huge amounts of value, and it'll go in these meandering directions from company to company, and one day you'll be working on a project in employee experience, and the next day you'll be working on something else. Maybe it'll be workplace design. So it's a very rich career and I think that's my that's my dream is that HR people really develop themselves in, in every possible way. And that makes the world better. It makes companies better. It makes work better for everybody. I love that you framed it before as a, as really a craft over a profession. And I think that, you know, what you just described really gives color to that. One last question before we wrap. So, you know, we've, you know, you've seen 15.5 and you've kind of seen our progression. So what do you think we should build next into the product? Well, first of all, I think you guys are an amazing company. And let, let me just give you credit for what you're doing. The performance management software space has been brutal for a lot of vendors. And you guys have done a really amazing job at not getting bogged down in the old models of performance management and actually creating a tool that really helps people run their companies and their teams, because that's what this is about. There's been temptation. There's been a lot of uh, temptation to go down back into the old way of doing it. Yeah. And, and you know, people will ask for that and HR people will always ask for that. So, so you're going to constantly have to deal with that as a challenge. I think the most interesting opportunity you guys have is to continue to build software enabling tools for being your best self, which is the vision that you guys have. And I think that's your philosophy, getting to know you better. You know, is it tips? Is it nudges? Is it suggestions? Is it training? Is it developmental assignments? What is it that will help me as a person, as an individual, as a team leader, or as a manager or a supervisor executive become better because I will in turn make my company better? That's a big Whole bunch of options. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't just creating a link, a, ch- a connection to LinkedIn Learning, and saying, "Here's a bunch of training, and go get it." It's a little more subtle than that, as you guys know. Yeah. And so, I think you guys are very good at that, and that, that's, I think, where I would put my energies. Yeah, we agree. I think you got to guide people down the path, and it's, it's a, you know, it's just like our lives and careers. It's a nonlinear process, so that that makes it an interesting uh, challenge. This has been great, Josh. Thanks for taking the time today. Uh, any closing thoughts for our listener? Thank you guys for asking me such open-ended questions that I don't always get to talk about. Um, I, I would say for the HR people listening, you've probably gone through a very tough year. Most of you probably haven't had any, year, any time off this year. You're probably working a lot of hours. You're doing things that you never thought you had to do before. 
But I would say sort of strap in and just live through this. This is the greatest learning opportunity of your life. 2020 is the year of HR in every single company. We are being asked to take on heroic roles, to partner with IT, to partner with facilities, to partner with legal, and figure out how to get through this process. You'll probably look back on this sometime in the future and say, wow, you know, that was a year that I really learned a lot and I met some amazing people and did some incredible things in our companies. So try to enjoy this as stressful and difficult as it is. That would be my, my number one message right now. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you, guys. Thank you to our producer, Counterweight Creative, to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 15.5.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you. Thank you.